There was once a couple who had been married for 60 years. Throughout their life, they had, I mean, shared everything. They loved each other deeply. They hadn't kept any secrets from one another except, except for a small shoebox that the wife kept on the top shelf of her bedroom closet. When they got married, she had put the box there and asked her husband never to look inside of that box, never to ask questions about its contents. And for 60 years, this husband, this man, he honored his wife's request. Um, In fact, he forgot about that box until a day when his wife grew um, gravely ill and the doctor's said that there was uh, no way that uh, she would recover. So the man, putting his wife's affairs into order, remembered that box on the top shelf of her closet. He got it down and he brought it to her in the hospital. And he asked her if perhaps now, perhaps now that they might be able to open it up and, and he might be able to see what was inside. She agreed. So they opened up that box and inside were two crocheted dolls and there was also a roll of money um, totaling $95,000. The man was astonished. The woman told her husband um, that the day before they were married, her grandmother had told her that if she and her husband um, ever got into an argument with each other, ever had conflict in their marriage, that they should work hard to reconcile it. And if they were unable to reconcile, then she should simply keep her mouth shut and crochet a doll. (laughs) Um, So um, she did that. Um, uh, She simply kept her mouth shut and and she crocheted. Uh, The man was touched by this because there was only two dolls there in that box. He was amazed that over 60 years of marriage, they apparently had only two conversations that they were unable to reconcile. (laughs) Tears came to his eyes, and he grew even more deeply in love with this woman, even at the end of of her life. Then he turned to the role of money, and he says, well, what's this? And his wife said, well, every time I crocheted a doll, I sold it at a local craft fair for $5. (laughs) (laughs) you've been in any relationship you know there's conflict involved right and if a relationship is going to last there's also going to need to be reconciliation that takes place and the greatest resource for um, getting back on track with relationships is the cross of Jesus Christ so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, turn with me. If you have your pew Bibles, you can take that. If you have your Bibles on your phone, you can look at it. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. We are continuing. If you haven't been with us, we are continuing our study uh, through 2 Corinthians. It's a very personal uh, book that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Corinth. And today what I want you to see is that reconciliation not only begins at the cross, it is also a priority for us as believers in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely essential. 
If you are a Christ follower, God has charged you, catch this, God has charged you with the ministry of reconciliation. Let's begin. Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. We're looking at the last portion of this chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Look what it says there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want you to notice here the five times in that, those verses I read there, uh, Paul uses um, a form of that word reconcile. Reconciliation is the overall theme here at the end of chapter five. Um, and this reconciliation be, uh, begins between God and us, between God and man, humanity. The Bible tells us the gap exists between a holy God and all of humanity. There's a gap. All people are sinners, right? The Bible tells us that. Therefore, we are alienated from God, and there's nothing we can do to cross that, to get across that chasm. There's nothing we can conceive of, nothing that we can come up with or nothing we can invent, not a series of ceremonies or good behaviors or obedient works that will enable us to bridge that gap and be reconciled with God. So if there is going to be a reconciliation that takes place at all, it's all going to have to come from God. God is going to have to be the initiator. And according to the Apostle Paul, God is exactly that. God is always the reconciler. Look with me again at verse 18. Look what he says there. Now understand, Paul has just talked about being a a new creation in Christ. And then he says this. um, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Look down at verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. See, God, he did what was impossible for us to do. Through Christ, through the cross, God has made it possible for sinners to be reconciled to him. And listen, if you have come to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and you have been reconciled to God, it has changed you. That's what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is now a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, catch this. This is exciting. Catch this. In Christ, you are a brand new creation. You are a brand new person in Christ. And as those who have been reconciled to God and as those who have been um, changed because of the work of the cross, 
those of us who are now a new creation in Christ, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, look with me at the last part of verse 18. Look what he says here. Through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Look with us down to verse 19. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Um, this message that has changed us is the message we have been charged with to take to the world around us. And that includes all of us. It's not just for those who have the, uh, the title pastor or those um, that, that have that spiritual gift of evangelism. But all of us <laughs> who have been reconciled to Christ, we have been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. That is our mission. That's what we live to do. In fact, I got to tell you, um, that's the real reason we've been left in this world. Sharing Christ with others, being an ambassador for Christ. Listen, that's not something you're going to be able to do up in heaven. Now, we were saved to worship, but our worship in this world isn't what it ought to be, right? But when we get to heaven, we'll continue worshiping, and it will be perfect. Our worship will be perfect in heaven. We were saved to fellowship, right? Um, but our fellowship in this world isn't what it ought to be. It's imperfect. That is, it will be that way until we get to glory. We'll have fellowship in glory. Everything we do as believers here is imperfect in its character and in its nature. The only thing, catch this, the only thing we do here that we will not be able to do up in heaven is this ministry of reconciliation. That's why we're here. But listen, I, I got to ask you, you know, for oftentimes, that's not enough to motivate us. These days, I don't know if you're, you, you've heard this, the question a lot of self-help and life skills seminars they ask is, uh, what is your why? Have you heard that phrase? What is your why, you know? What's the reason that you wake up every morning and go to work? What's your, what's your purpose in life? What is your why? What's your motivation? There's a great story about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer who spent years in a Siberian prison. At one point, he had become completely discouraged and decided to, to give up and die. His plan was he would stop working out there in the field and just lean on his sho shovel and wait for the, the guards to come and beat him to death. That was his plan. However, when he stopped, another prisoner reached over with his shovel and quickly drew a cross at his feet. And then he raised it before the guards could see it. Solzhenitsyn later said that his entire being was energized by that little reminder of the hope and courage that we have in Christ. <laughs> he found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of his why. What's your why? Apostle Paul here gives us his why. 
Look back with me, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Um, I love the NIV. It translates it this way. It says, for Christ's love compels us. Compels us. It's Christ's love that motivates Paul. That's his why. <laughs> Paul under, uh, Paul's understanding of the love of Christ became a dramatic powerful motivation for him. Now listen, few of us have the Apostle Paul's gifts, okay? I understand that. None of us will have his opportunities. But all of us have that same message. This message he received, and hopefully all of us then will have that same why. We're, we're driven by that same powerful motivation. That word compel literally means uh, to him in, to hold on both sides, to take away the options, to give no way out, to back into a corner. <laughs> we are hemmed in by the love of Christ. Now, we might think the love of Christ leaves us a, a variety of options. Um, but Paul would have none of that. He said the love of Christ takes away our options, backs us into a corner, holds us firmly on both sides and gives us no way out. Christ's love pushes us forward to the message of reconciliation. The love of Christ compelled Paul. Why? Because he understood that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love towards us in Christ's death. Christ died for all. The love of God in Christ was unique. In exactly the same way that the power of God transcends any human power and the wisdom of God transcends any human wisdom, so the love of God transcends any human love. And this incredibly gracious love <laughs> doesn't demand that we stop being sinners. It doesn't say, I will love you if... Now, God's love isn't just some warm, you know, fuzzy feeling. Now, God's love, it, it, it took Christ to the cross, friends, for us. In fact, look with me down in verse 21. Look at the exchange that um, uh, took place. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the exchange that took place. Jesus knew no sin. I mean, as a person, um, through his 33 years of living on this earth, Jesus was sinless. But on that cross, during those three dark hours on Good Friday, Jesus became sin as our substitute for us as a sacrifice. And he did this so that his spotless righteousness could be credited to us. As a result, God could um, no longer count our sins against us. He would reckon that sin to Christ and reckon to us the righteousness of Christ. Friends, that's love. 
Credible love. Actor Kevin Bacon tells a, a humorous story about a conversation that he had with his six-year-old son after his son had seen his movie, um, Footloose, um, you know, for the first time. Um, his son said, hey, Dad, you know that thing in the movie where you swing from the rafters of that building? I mean, that's really cool. How did you do that? <laughs> Bacon said to his son, well, I didn't do that part. Um, that was a stuntman. His son said, well, what's a stuntman? <laughs> Kevin Bacon said, well, that's someone who dresses up like me and, and does things that I can't do. His son said, oh. And he walked out of the room looking a little bit uh, confused. A little later on, that six-year-old son re returned. He said, hey, Dad, you, you know that thing in the movie where you spin around on that gym bar and land on your feet? How did you do that? <laughs> and uh, Kevin Bacon said, well, I, I didn't do that. That was my gymnastics double. What's a gymnastics double, the son said. Well, that's a guy who dresses in my clothes and does things that I can't do. There was silence, Kevin Bacon said, from my son. Then he asked in a concerned voice, well, Dad, what did you do? <laughs> And sheepishly, Kevin Bacon said, I got all the glory. Friends, I got to tell you, that's the grace of God in our lives, okay? Jesus took our sin upon himself, and his righteousness was transferred into our account. And we stand forgiven, and we bask sheepishly triumphant in Jesus' glory. That's love. I don't think Paul, the Apostle Paul, ever recovered uh, from that discovery of that truth on that road to Damascus when all the unrighteousness of Saul of Tarsus had been credited to Christ and, and, and taken to the cross. And all the glorious righteousness of Jesus Christ had been credited to Saul of Tarsus and had hemmed him in. He couldn't escape. It took away his options. He was backed into a corner, held firm, unmistakably, unshakably by the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ, he says, it compels me. And that love changes his whole mindset, his whole perspective. He begins seeing people with new eyes. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we meet Jesus Christ, we become new, and we no longer see people from a worldly point of view. When we're transformed by our relationship with Christ, um, we see people differently because what we see is a shape by who we are. See, Paul was no longer going to look through um, a worldly lens when he looked at people. Rather, he was going to look at people through the filter of the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
He was no longer going to look at people based upon their external um, circumstances, their, their outward sin. He was no longer going to look at people according to their offenses or even their, their accomplishments. Instead, Paul is going to look at people through the filter of their potential, the potential of Christ, uh, of the cross to be at work in their lives. Paul was going to imagine that people could actually become brand new. <laughs> Again, I think Paul, as he wrote this, um, is thinking back to his dramatic change that took place in his own life. Don't you? Before, when he was the old creation, he went by the name of Saul of Tarsus, a brilliant rabbi, uh, uh, well-versed in the Old Testament. Saul, the rabbi, believed that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus of Nazareth hung on a tree. Therefore, Jesus of Nazareth is accursed. I mean, that's simple logic, right? Then Saul went a step further, and, and, and Jesus claims to be Messiah. Well, the Messiah can't be cursed. Therefore, Jesus must not be the Messiah. Saul of Tarsus now takes his logical conclusion a step further and says that Jesus got what he deserved. He was a blasphemer. He, he, he's accursed. A, a the curse uh, rightly rests on him, and his misguided followers must be stopped. Saul devoted considerable energy to exterminating the followers of the way until he has an encounter with the risen Christ. And in that encounter with the risen Christ, he suddenly, he suddenly notices something. Until now, Saul was convinced that Jesus was wrong and Saul was right. Now he says, uh-oh, Saul is wrong and Jesus is right. Jesus isn't accursed. Jesus is really the Messiah. Jesus is a son of God with authority proven by his resurrection from the dead. And Paul must say, I am now the chief of sinners. He completely changed his mind. It was a completely different perspective, a completely different way of viewing life and others. Let me ask you this. Has the cross of Jesus Christ changed you? Has the cross worked radical transformation in your life? If the cross of Jesus Christ has changed you, it can change the person that's sitting next to you. And if the cross of Jesus Christ can change a person sitting next to you, it can change a person in your office. It can change a person, um, you know, in your classroom. It can, it can change the, the person who lives across the street from you. The cross of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world when it comes to reconciliation. One of the clearest signs, listen, that we are being changed by Christ is that we don't see people through a worldly lens. We're no longer regarding others according to the flesh. And instead, we see the beauty of God's image in them, in others. And this new mindset brings us back to our mission, right? Reconciliation. 
We should take the cross to those who do not know Christ. We are his ambassadors now. An ambassador, right? An ambassador lives in a country other than her homeland. She lives in that, that foreign country um, in order to represent the, the, the government back home. She doesn't propagate a personal message, but rather simply communicates the message that's communicated to her, and, and she seeks to do nothing that would damage or hurt the reputation of her home country. Likewise, God has assigned us, you and I, as new creatures, as new creations in Christ to be ambassadors that communicate his message, the message of reconciliation. That means we live as representatives of the age to come in a fundamentally alien territory of this present evil age. That means we live each day representing heaven, living among our neighbors and coworkers and, and fellow students and giving them a, a vision of God. As ambassadors, we have a message. Listen, we have a message from the king. The message is simply this. The day is coming when the king will appear in great glory. When the king appears... Human history will come to its divinely ordained end. The day of salvation is here. Be reconciled to God. That's the message. Chuck Colson, maybe you're familiar with that name. Chuck Colson went to uh, Brown University before he became a Marine. He went on to law school. But his goal all along was politics. It wasn't long before he became the, the lawyer of the president for the United States at that time, Richard Nixon. That was the peak of everything Chuck Colson had dreamed of in this world. But he saw his hero begin to spiral downward, caught in the web of uh, Watergate. Many at that time were suspicious that I had a suspicion that Chuck Colson was behind the whole Watergate break-in and also the, the cover-up. When Colson realized that he was going to be subpoenaed, he didn't uh, know what to do, so he talked to a friend of his, Tom Phillips, uh, a CEO. Colson told Phillips of the dilemma that he was in and what was happening at the White House, and Phillips said, Chuck, you need what I've discovered. What's that? Colson replied. And Phillips responded, you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Colson, at the time, he was a nominal Roman Catholic believer at best. He was not at all active. He was probably more described as, as a cynic. He was suspicious of people who had, you know, these religious conversions. And he would have shaken off his friend Phillips if it weren't for two things. Number one, Philip's life had changed. Number two, he was a friend who was trying to help him. Phillips gave uh, uh, Colson a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and, and Colson agreed to read it. Colson, as he read that, was touched by Lewis's exploration of the essence of the Christian faith, and he began to see that there were answers to some of his faith-oriented questions that he had never really investigated before. 
In the darkness of his own hour, Chuck Colson then asked Jesus Christ into his life. He admitted his sin and put his trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and asked to be reconciled to God. When Colson was eventually subpoenaed to testify, he was hammered by questions that were thrown to him. Did you know anything about the break-in in advance? Did you have anything to do with the cover-up? To every question, Colson answered no. Suspicious that he was hiding behind his religious conversion, they kept asking the questions, and finally, they gave up. Colson then said, wait a second. Hold on. I've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that demands I be honest with you. The answers honestly are no to all of the questions you've asked, but you haven't asked the right questions. Let me tell you what you did wrong. Colson then confessed to the criminal activities of which they knew nothing, and he ended up going to jail for them. Soon after Colson's conviction and subsequent time in prison, he was interviewed by a pastor named John Huffman. Huffman writes, I confess I was a cynic about him. With him at the interview, with him at the interview was Senator Harold Hughes of Iowa, a recovering alcoholic and a vital man of faith. Hughes had been mentoring Colson. I peppered Colson with all sorts of questions, and he came right back with answers. Finally, Huffman said, Colson, listen, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian quite a few years, and I resent people who use Jesus to get out of a jam and then drop him and then go on with their life. How do we know this thing is real? Prove it to me. And Colson stopped. He thought for a minute. He said, John, the only thing I can say is, see what I'm doing 10 years from now. That interview, of course, took place in 1974, soon after, and you probably know his story, Colson got out of prison and he began working with prisoners. Not only with prisoners, but he began working with prisoners, their spouses, and began working with their, their children, sharing the message of reconciliation. Here was a fellow who was reconciled, and because of the, the love of Christ, he was, uh, he was compelled to be a reconciler himself, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And friends, I got to tell you, that's our mission, yours and mine, all of ours. As those reconciled, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. So let me simply finish with this. Remind you of this. God is in the business of changing lives. I know that because he changed mine. <laughs> I know that also because I know some of your stories, and I know that God has changed you. If you've come to the foot of the cross and submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you have been reconciled to God, and now God has charged you to be an ambassador of his, an ambassador of Christ. And listen, if you have not yet come to the foot of the cross, and yet not come to that place where you put your faith 
in Christ and been reconciled to God, I got to tell you, God is inviting you to take that step today. Today is a day of salvation. The question you have to answer is simply this, do I want it? Do I want it? Do I want to be a new creation, spiritually reborn? Do I want salvation? Do I want forgiveness? Do I want reconciliation? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love displayed to us on the cross, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, taking our sin upon him and giving us his peace, giving us, God, just his righteousness. Oh, what an amazing, amazing truth. How wonderful your grace, how marvelous your mercy, how amazing your love. We thank you for that this morning. In your son's precious name, amen.